0: As a business leader, what do you do when struggling with your mental health? How do you know when to stop and put your well-being first? Because
1: it did come out of the blue in many ways, but there were signs, there were signals. And, you know, back to that resilient point, I kept going, I just
0: kept going. And even then, how do you deal with the stigma that still exists in the workplace around mental health?
1: And I received a a throwaway comment. It's a bit awkward when you talk about your mental health to the business, Michelle. Which was crushing and silencing, and I went out of the business under a really vague, chipper, just addressing some health issues, be back soon. You know, and the truth is, I wasn't back soon, and I never went back into the day-to-day of liberty.
0: Hey, it's Simon, and welcome to episode 36, the final episode in the three-part mini-series on mental health, with my guest, agency leader, entrepreneur, and now mental health campaigner, Michelle Morgan. Behind the success of many leaders, there is a story of vulnerability and self-doubt. Michelle's story is one of a committed, high-achieving agency founder, who behind the successful facade was carrying deep feelings of shame and anxiety. Ultimately, this culminated in a dramatic physical and mental burnout, leading to her stepping away from the business that had been her baby for nearly 20 years.
1: I don't know what happened, I just I walked down my stairs and I got to the bottom and I sat there and I had my head in my hands and I just cried and slumped, you know, and just thought, you know, I can't go on. I, I cannot go on. I can't do one more thing.
0: The workplace conversations and stigma that resulted from her mental health crisis were to play a big part in Michelle's future career direction. Recovery and a reset brought new enlightenment around her identity and a renewed sense of purpose. Michelle is now an ambassador for the Mental Health First Aid Organisation. A mental health first aid instructor and founder of P-Joy's, a pyjama business born out of her mental health struggle. In our conversation, we talk about how a traumatic childhood, when her father repeatedly left home, contributed to feelings of abandonment and shame. Despite her business success, how Michelle found it hard to put any boundaries around her work commitment. And finally, how her experiences are being put to positive use, promoting mental health in the workplace, in her P.Joy's pajama business, and in writing a book to be published later in the year titled Own Your Awkward. Let's get into the conversation. Well, thank you so much for coming on Turning the Tables. Michelle, it's great to have you on, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Obviously, the context for this is is mental health, and that's actually been a very much of a catalyst for you, I think, in in your life in terms of the kind of businesses you're involved in now, and obviously it's affected you on a personal level. But before we talk about that, I thought it would be really good to understand a bit about you in the beginning and and your story before work came into your life?
1: Thank you, it's so nice to be here as well Simon, so thank, thank you, you so much for inviting me um, and you're absolutely right, I think I am here because of my mental health story um, and I share my mental health story regularly um, but thank you for asking me about what came before because my mental health story doesn't entirely define me, it's a, it is a big part of me but it doesn't define me. And it's important that I remember that, especially considering what I do now, which is so immersed in the space of, of mental health campaigning. So if I, if I go way, way back, oh, can I even remember? But, uh, you know, I had, had, a pretty, had a pretty normal childhood. Um, I was quite a quiet child, looking back probably quite introverted, but when necessary, could hold my own. I think that's kind of how I would be described. Um, Not particularly academic, which I think is always interesting when you look at my entrepreneurial journey over the last two decades. I sort of begin to fit kind of some of the stereotype entrepreneurs in that I failed pretty much all of my exams, like the first slot when I was about 15, 15, 16, and and then went to college, but got chucked out of college because I wasn't actually going to college. And all around that sort of time of my exams and not going to college, um, my parents had split up, my dad had left home, and, and that was a really traumatic time. It was incredibly traumatic for my mum. She had depression and and a hell of a lot of anxiety. And, you know, one of my reflections looking back in terms of things that have shaped me, um, she was incredibly worried about money and our financial situation. Um, and often kind of unable really to do much more than survive and exist from day to day Um, with no less love. But, you know, I would say that my sister and I kind of had a little bit of a reversal of roles in that relationship. And, you know, I probably would say my dad wasn't being great. We're on great terms now after a long time of mending but at that point in our lives you know everything was really complicated and and as a result it was quite traumatic and I think a lot of that shaped what I did next and what I went on to do and then on to do and then on to do Um, and so then we had a a lot of wayward years the kind of the lost years where I did lots of things sometimes had fun sometimes didn't um, but I guess I was, you know, my, my university was almost the university of life. And, you know, eventually I found myself in Hong Kong and did that sort of funny thing that sometimes we do when we're living in a different country, which is amazingly blag ourselves into a job that probably we would not have even got to an interview stage and that was in an agency. It was in a, an advertising, in a design agency out there. And it was the first time that I'd had a job where, you know, I felt creative and I felt good at my job and I was enjoying my job. And the great thing about Hong Kong back in the 90s, because it was all the way back then, was that things moved very quickly. And so within a year, I had an amazing portfolio and experience of work. So that meant when I when I came back, I could walk into a Soho agency with some great experience behind me and great work and great and great clients, and you know started to work my, work my way up in that agency. Again, loved it and loved the people that I was working with and the clients, and but got to a stage where I felt like there must be more, and I began to have this kind of ambition. To do something myself and then I met Sam Conniff who was to become my business partner in Liberty and and essentially we, we wondered if we could save the world with a marketing agency and so we set that up in 2001 um, essentially a youth-led creative agency and Liberty celebrates its 20th birthday in, next week next Fantastic. week
0: I was going to take you back a, a little bit, um, what you were saying. So when you described them as the lost years, what led you to calling them the lost years? What was it about that period? Well, for a start, I did so
1: many things that in terms of efficiency of time, I <laughs> had to start listing through. All the things that I I did in those years would, you know, we, we would be here for hours. Um And so, I probably say the lost years kind of with a little bit of a wry smile because actually, they were probably some of my most informative years as well. Trying different jobs, not liking lots of them, liking the occasional one, really liking a feeling of independence and earning my own money. That was a really big thing for me. And then traveling moving out of home moving to Brighton um you know actually they were really valuable years so I don't mean to belittle them by saying they were the lost years but I guess when I share my story for efficiency's sake
0: you know they were slightly blurry they were very full I I was just wondering no I mean Correct me if I'm wrong, I was just wondering whether you, whether they were lost in the sense you were fi- trying to find your identity in that period.
1: Completely and utterly. And in actual fact, um, I don't think I've shared this very much when I've shared my story of mental health and mental health challenges. I had my first panic attack during that time. And... Uh, and got myself to a GP and was prescribed beta blockers. Um, And I remember the GP saying, we'll give you these beta blockers because they could be treating a wide variety of things, of illnesses. And what we don't want is for your medical records to say you have anxiety or depression. Mm-hmm. And again, this was back in, this was in the late, well, this is, it was in the mid-90s. So that's so interesting. But, you know, I'd almost blanked that out, which is why it's sort of, it's actually a kind of a more new part of my story as over the last four years, I've begun to understand my mental health much more and realise that, Actually, in 2016, when I had my big burnout moment that led into clinical depression and and anxiety, well, sometimes I tell that story as, as if it were the first time. It was not the first time. And in actual fact, that time back in the 90s, was that the first time? Probably not. Yes, it was the first time I'd had a panic attack. Was I experiencing mental health issues before that? I think I probably was. Because, in fact, what we know now is 75% of people who experience poor mental health or a mental illness, that has developed before the age of 18.
0: So as you reflect back on those earlier years, you described it as being difficult, I think was the word. Do, do you now, looking back think that the nature of your childhood and the difficulties you had then and the relationship at that time with your father was any component in what's happened subsequently?
1: Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Um, About 18 months ago, 18 months ago, um, which was three years after a diagnosis of burnout clinical depression and three years of different types of treatment all of which were being very or most of which were being very helpful I was seeing a a psychologist and um and doing lots of things putting lots of things around that to look after my mental health and well-being but I had started to experience kind of what are more broadly known as intrusive thoughts and just couldn't stop thinking about death although I had no intention or want or need to take my own life and certainly no plan I just couldn't stop thinking about death and so I picked your, up your own
0: death, as opposed to death, death in, in a general no,
1: sense. death generally.
0: Just generally. Yeah.
1: Um, my own, but also really my family's, my, mm-hmm. my immediate family, my husband and my daughter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and so I called my psychologist, who you know I would see periodically, but wasn't seeing at that moment. And and also I was learning more about mental illness, and I got back to. In front of her, and you know, describing very carefully, I was quite scared to say it out loud, but I described these intrusive thoughts. And you know, she agreed that you know, maybe there was something greater, and there had been something greater than that initial reason that I had gone to see her, which was so um, amplified in 2016 it was so violent my burnout and depression that that's what she was treating you know and, and actually that's what I talked about but then talking it through with her kind of what happens then on either side of that throughout life like you're you're asking me now she said yeah I <laughs> yeah i think this could you could be experiencing a mood disorder you might be diagnosed with a mood disorder and so she referred me to a psychiatrist that she works with and i went to see him and he, you know he was brilliant and he said these two words emotional dysregulation and i went that's me <laughs> like me <laughs> If you describe me in two words, you know, that's me. And he said, you know, this can come from trauma. And I had experienced, you know, a number of different types of trauma, really, in those teenage years.
0: Well, I guess, and also as a young a young woman, things that might you might reflect back now as not being necessarily significant, I'm sure... In reality were very traumatic You know, separation from your father Whatever the issues were You know, you can imagine that Actually they had a deeper impact Than than you necessarily knew at the time
1: Yeah, absolutely You know, abandonment Yeah And repeated abandonment Yes Not malicious abandonment But, you know, he kept going and then coming back Yes Um, but you know also my reflection is failing those exams or only passing four I had so much shame so much shame and to a degree I would say you know because that happened during that time you know I'd almost put it on an equal level with the trauma of you know, my father leaving and I carried that shame around failing my exams. Well, I still carry it. I'm much better at understanding it now, you know, knowing that it's okay. I'm a real champion of that. But look, that, you know, that took many decades. And And that just, I think that had a really big impact on my self-esteem, my confidence, and therefore my vulnerability to developing poor mental health.
0: Mm.
1: And because of what else had happened, which was more of the trauma side of things that you might easily put in that kind of trauma bucket. But then when that was know when you mix that with times of stress or times of a loss of identity um, you know or add more trauma to it then your vulnerability if your vulnerability is quite big already then your vulnerability to develop mental illness in the future is much greater and even though your resilience can be pretty pretty hardcore, because I actually was call myself quite a resilient person in many ways. But, you know, knowing what I know about the risk factors and protective factors that are around each and every one of us and it, that are different to each and every one of us because we all have lived a different life.
0: I think that point about resilience is a really interesting one. I relate to that enormously because... I think i would describe myself as a resilient person and i think sometimes that resilience means that you work through if that's the best word things that are going on in your life without necessarily dealing with them i.e because you're resilient you can take on that pressure whether it's family work health whatever else it is and Yet, deep down the effects are still there and at some point because i'm pretty sure this happened to me the body said you've got to something's got to change and it it created the, the circumstances for well both chronic, chronic fatigue in my case and and yeah. the mental health issues that came with it and i wonder whether that might be the same for you
1: uh, Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Um, Because if you then, if you use my 2016 as the example of what happened in that year, and that at the end of that year, in the December, I sat at the bottom of my stairs, physically broken. I knew. I didn't really know that I was mentally broken because I didn't have the words and the language for it. But that year, you know, my resilience took an absolute beating because, you know, I I had way too much going on, way too much stress, physical issues that were undiagnosed, leading the business through an investment round. And then, you know, my, my daughter started school in that year. Now, there was nothing bad with that, and I often reference this. You know, she loved secondary school. She was 11, and and she joined so many after-school clubs, and that was really joyful. And that was exactly at the same time as Remy, my husband's, art career was really taking off. And he had done a really big chunk of the kind of the parenting bit that is the taking to school and picking up because he could because he was an artist um but he was aware and I was you know delighted for both of them but you know having new areas of our family life to manage
0: I was going to say it's like a perfect storm isn't it and absolutely of many things some of which you are conscious of and some of which you're not and uh, I mean I think this is a really important you know an important message for people listening is that you don't necessarily know it's going to happen and you have but it's a really good idea to keep your awareness as high as possible because it sometimes it comes out of the blue absolutely
1: or does it come out of the blue
0: well it comes out of the blue in your terms it doesn't come in out of the blue in reality because as you rightly said and as I could point to there are many many factors that came together but I I suppose what I mean by that is the perfect storm comes out of the blue
1: absolutely and and I only say that kind of provocatively because it did come out of the blue in many ways but there were signs Mm. there were signals and, you know, back to that resilient point, I kept going. I just kept going through that year. So much so, and knowingly so, that in uh, as we were hurtling towards closing the deal in the August of 2016, I started, I had this narrative to myself. When we get to August and close the deal, gonna start looking after myself better I'm gonna to get to the root cause of these these physical issues you know I'm gonna to, gonna to look after myself and then we close the deal and you know I did the most you know I'm embarrassed to say what I did but you know there's this great notion I, I think often it's used when a president comes in your first hundred days of anything new and this was a new relationship for us we now had an investor we had a chairman And so I said to myself, in the August, right, first 100 days. Well, I'll get the first 100 days done, and then I'm going to really look after myself. And I think I worked out it was day 104 that I hit that wall, and I still wasn't making any time. I had no boundaries around work. And I think, again, that, that sort of goes all the way back to some of my drivers and motivators and, and my my failings and my lack of self-esteem. So in many ways, liberty did define me in many, many ways because we won awards, we were doing good, we were held up as, you know, one of the first examples of, of a business that, you know, placed equal importance on profit and purpose.
0: You know, do you think on reflection you... you- You were just really striving hard to prove yourself.
1: Absolutely.
0: As if what happened in the beginning, you know, your relationship with your father and his absence was sort of made you feel somehow or other you had to do that.
1: I I think you're absolutely right. To get his approval. The the type of therapy that I have is more about... um, kind of understanding yourself and and looking forward and giving yourself kind of techniques. Um, So there hasn't been a massive lot of kind of looking back. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, I would say that's that's a pretty accurate um, assessment. Um, But not only my father, you know, other people around me. You know, I had, you know, one of my very best friends and actually she's my partner in P-Joy's now, you know, I, I moved in with her family for a while during that time and we were at different schools and we did all of our revision together. And she was so bloody bright and academic. <laughs> and You know what? She passed every single exam with flying so colours. And uh, you know, we've talked about it since. But you know, I, I think I, you know, that feeling of failure and not being good enough or as good. Mm. You know, it that it's not just about that time, kind of with my parents. Actually, it's, it's quite a lot of other things around me. You know, it was my peer group. So actually, my peer group mm. were all pretty smart, and my peer group, in the main, went to university, and and that wasn't an, a direct, immediate option.
0: Before we move on to talk about how Michelle's breakdown unfolded. I want to shout out again to the Alliance of Independent Agencies who partner with Turning the Tables on this mini-series. The Alliance are an organisation that take the mental health and well-being of people in agencies seriously. Their wellbeing action group promotes the importance of creating safe environments and building people's resilience. They even have an annual festival of happiness as well as promoting training for mental first aid champions. You can check out the Alliance's work at the link in the show notes. Now let's get back to our conversation. So when we're on 104 days, how did it manifest itself at that point?
1: Well, we were just moving out of our house because oh, on top of that, we were also having some house renovations done, <laughs> you know, which probably just if you were doing that in a year, would be pretty stressful, um, you know. And I should say that this whole story does come from a place of privilege and I I recognise my privilege. Um, but we the, the removal guys were here and they were packing up, up the house and, and I really was – w- I was – you know, I, I I suspect my immune system was shot to pieces. I had very bad anaemia by this stage. I by this stage I knew I I needed to have a hysterectomy most likely. Um, so I was also coming to terms with you know losing my fertility, and um, and I didn't feel ready to do that, and. I don't know what happened. I just I walked down my stairs and I got to the bottom and I sat there and I had my head in my hands and I just cried and slumped you know and just thought you know I can't go on. I I cannot go on I can't do one more thing you know and I think the term burnout was accurate in that moment you know I was just physically and mentally and probably emotionally burnt out from that year you know and and I needed to rest but again I was finding that a very difficult concept because by this time I think I was really deep in I have to work, I have to work, the responsibility of work and and the responsibility of this investment deal, which was a four-year plan. That was the moment when the anxiety, I think, came to the forefront because... You know, there was a conflict and a conversation that was now, at this stage, probably only going on in my head. Um, but, you know, just from, a, a, you know, that baseline of exhaustion and feeling like I couldn't go on. Because what happened kind of shortly after that moment of it feeling quite physical and seeing my GP was kind of in a way, it was a worse moment, and, and that was confronting the fact that my purpose and passion for liberty was utterly burnt out as well. And this was a business, you know, that I loved, that I was proud of, that I had risked, I would say, everything for, because I, I put my house up against it I was the one that had the credit ratings so I could get credit cards when we needed to pay the wages you know when we needed a loan I could put my house against that and so of course actually I, I risked my marriage and my family in many ways um, And I, but I was just burnt out and, and had lost that, you know, that deep love for liberty and our purpose and our people. You know, it was such fun for most of the time. And that was a really tough moment. And what that did at that moment was, you know, obviously it was starting to bring up a lot of questions for me. And... It was also bringing up some questions with the people that I was beginning to confide in, um, you know, at that board level. And that stimulated such anxiety in me, and to an extent, a paranoia, and absolutely a massive sense of failing and shame. And then the uncertainty that came with all of that and fear and kind of going back to, you know, that insight of being defined by this business. And if I, you know, at at one stage, I, I couldn't even imagine being able to go into the office ever again. What on earth would I do or could I do? And that's just a bizarre thing to be thinking anyway
0: so as yes especially when you were one of the founders
1: yeah it was just it was so difficult and actually my anxiety was rising and rising my insomnia was getting worse and worse the uncertainty was kind of getting bigger and bigger and then I was flip-flopping between that state and the state of depression so the anxiety in short And anxiety looks and feels like different things to different people. But for me, in short, the anxiety was feeling everything times 10. And the depression was feeling nothing. And that sense of of hollowness and helplessness and not having the energy to go on. And then flipping between those two states is exhausting and confusing as well. And I did spend a lot of time in my pyjamas and I did spend a lot of time not being able to leave the house sometimes. But again, being resilient, I was...
0: Yeah, you tried to to carry on. Yeah, uh,
1: well, by this stage, you know, there there was a moment when it it was really clear. And again, led by the physical. All of, so many of these conversations around that time were led by the physical it was easier for us all to talk about my physical uh, challenges than it was the mental you know which I had raised but that had caused a bit of a tumbleweed moment and then when I kind of a few weeks later you know had had come to understand that I needed to have the hysterectomy and like shared that and oh I've got anemia and You know, there was a moment where it it was, uh, oh, oh, we knew something must be wrong. You know, and I look back and think, well, no, that was another thing that was wrong. But it was easier Mm -hmm. for us to talk about, you know, the physical than it was the mental. And so, you know, that's that's the place that we stayed in mostly, and. You know, and I, I clearly had to take some time out of the business for all kinds of reasons by, by that stage. And, and that was kind of, you know, I guess to sort of the moment that really, if I look back, was, you know, certainly one of the pivotal moments. And that does shape, I mean, in particular at the moment, shapes so much of what I do and where I do it and why I do it now was as I stepped out of the business you know I'm a pretty open person and wanted to communicate to the business and and I received a, a throwaway comment it's a bit awkward when you talk about your mental health to the business Michelle which was crushing and silencing and I went out of the business under a really vague chipper just addressing some health issues be back soon Mm. You know, and the truth is I wasn't back soon and I never went back into the day-to-day of liberty. And then, you know, I guess the other thing that I have learned since then, um, which is now the title of a book that I'm writing, yeah, just do it and chuck another thing in, obviously looking out for stress levels and work levels and working hard on not working too hard which is a big part of what I have to do now as I understand my own mental health you know actually what well, I came to the conclusion that you can't eradicate awkward conversations as you're talking about our mental health probably more often than not is going to be awkward but what if? instead of avoiding an awkward conversation to protect ourselves or perhaps the other person, that moment when either I'm gonna tell you about my mental health or ask you about yours, what if I hold the space, hold the awkward, better still own my awkward so that can help you own yours? And we push on through and we have an awkward conversation. And I bet you that you know nine times out of 10, once we're in the conversation it's helpful and meaningful and we should have more of them and we're better for it so my 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 rallying cry now is not that it's not awkward and we can all talk about mental health and we should all talk about mental health it's it is awkward but own your awkward and if we all own our awkward together, we can push on through and have the conversations. And that is from a vulnerable, fragile place as human beings. But we will all be better.
0: I just wondered what you, you, you would say to people in this world of communications, and advertising and, and such, about how to manage themselves in this situation. Well, this is a leadership issue.
1: Simon this is a leadership issue so you know the I think some of the most important work I do is the leadership and management teams or the senior management teams who are willing to oh my goodness find a couple of hours in their very very busy diary to have a session facilitated by me to understand mental health, understand mental ill health and the context, understand that we all have mental health and, you know, understand that this is not about, from a leadership issue, just having a really great set of policies, processes and provisions in place, you know, plenty of fruit in a bowl at work you know that yeah that's really good and for some general ongoing if if you eat fruit um this you know it needs to be um more authentic it needs to be more meaningful and some of the most meaningful things that I have seen leaders do is attend mental health first aid training you know, which is quite a big commitment and is often not deemed, you know, uh, necessary, worthy of one's time, that is what has the biggest impact on the people in that room because it's the person they know and they're like, oh my God, when, you know, let's call him John, when John described having a panic attack and calling our CEO. To tell him about that and get in support, and that was okay. And he didn't, you know, essentially. Oh, he didn't lose his job, and you know, he, look, he's here now, doing great, and talking about his mental health. That is what can make the biggest difference. And I have seen that in different ways.
0: And now, on a on a personal level, now looking looking forward, obviously you've got PJoy's, which which looks a really exciting project. And, sounds like it's going really well how how are you managing yourself going forward as well as the new things you're doing the book obviously you've talked about i think you're going to talk about podcasts as well How, how are you achieving the right balance now
1: So one of the good things about immersing yourself in the space of mental health is it is ever present. And I am always talking about it. And I'm always encouraging people to notice, observe their own mental health and well-being and stress levels. Sometimes stress is the easier language to get into the topic. Um, So, you know, I'm often talking about for other people but I'm also talking about about it myself so it's often top of mind and I will sometimes hear myself saying these things out loud and think I'm not leading by example here hold on (laughs) you know Mm. so I'm better at, at being able to spot my stress signatures I you know I still I do so many things to look after my mental health you know when when I went Back to my psychologist and got referred to the psychiatrist, and and you know, got got a better understanding of some of the things that were kind of consistently going on for my mental health. I went on to a medication. So for just over a year, from year to 18 months, I've been on a medication. And and that has really helped, um, and probably really helped over the last 12 months. You know, I have found my mental health to be in a pretty good state. Being asked this question actually quite regularly, so what do you do to look after your mental health, Michelle? I was like, oh, yeah, what do I do? So actually I I started to get it down, like onto a slide, because during pandemic, you know, that, it's been Zooms and Teams and Meets and, and presenting remotely. And actually, this is not the whole list, but I have got it down to quite handily six M's, which I call the me plan. But Of course, it can be your plan as well. It can be anyone's plan. It's the Michelle plan, the me plan, the mental health plan. And it's putting me at the centre of looking after my own mental health. And so the first M is move. Which you know, is just more, much more accessible than exercise. and we can move in all different kinds of ways. It doesn't have to be fast running or cycling. We can go for a walk. We can move away from the desk. The second one is meditate. Um, and again, you know interpret this as you will. How do you how do you bring yourself out of your mind into your body? How do you create a sense of stillness and calm? The third one is make. That's probably why so much sourdough bread was made during lockdown. Actually, we had an innate need to do stuff with our hands, gardening, banana bread, playing the piano again, you know, making Lego with our kids. You know, actually, it is a human need that often goes by the wayside. And then we have meat, which is, you know, if it wasn't an M, it would be connect, um, you know, and that is you know, how are we meeting with others in different ways? What's right for you? What do you need right now? We do need to meet and connect with others and then meaning. We all as human beings, we need meaning in our lives. And again, well, yeah, that might be setting up a purpose led business, but I'm a bit all or nothing. And you don't have to do that. But how are you volunteering? How are you sending a kind note to someone? Um, And then the the last one is mindset, because actually there are tools and techniques. They're a little bit more formal and they can be quite hard. But sometimes you have to reach for a framework, for a technique to help shift your mind out of maybe something that is unhelpful into something that is more helpful. And sometimes you have to force yourself to do that. And on those days where you really can't, that is when it's okay not to be okay. But what I would say is, it's not okay to be not okay all the time. I know that not everyone will feel comfortable with putting themselves at the heart of a self-care plan. But think about it this way. If you invest in your own self-care, if you invest in your own well-being, your own mental health, you will have greater capacity to support others. So, you know, that if you can't do it for yourself, you're actually doing it for others.
0: I love your six M's and I think... The, the very, very important point that I think we can make to everyone is that it's actually the combination of those things.
1: Absolutely. Which is
0: very powerful, even if you only do them, as you rightly said, you only do, you know, moments for each, small pockets of time.
1: Completely. I, I I think would s-
0: doing them all is the key thing.
1: I would say you don't have to do them all in one day.
0: No, of course. Okay.
1: And how I view them, I ask myself a question. And I have found this to be just one of the most useful questions in my toolkit of looking after my mental health. And that is to ask what is needed? What is needed? Because there are some of those M's that I just naturally do more joyfully, more easily, more regularly. And and that's okay, you know, brilliant. But sometimes to sit back and just ask myself, what is needed? And if you give your space to then observe, uh, you know, whether you're looking at the end plan or not, I can usually start to tap into actually what is needed is maybe something different. Okay, what can I do that's different? So it could be ticking something off your list, doing something that has a start, middle and, and an end. Because again, sort of coming all the way back to mind to mindset, those things can help shift your mood.
0: I thought it'd be great just it, maybe share with everybody the, the you know, the, the businesses you're involved in and how they can get in touch and all of those things.
1: Oh, well, wonderful. Um, you know, the best way to get in touch with me is through PJoy's p-j-o-y-s apparently we named it something that's really good for search i don't have to do very much to be pretty high up so you know we're at pjoys.co.uk or we're pjoys on twitter and instagram so you know i'm there on your dms and, and and also linkedin um, so that's P joys, but that is also the best way to get in touch with me you know if if you want to join in some kind of mental health training and yeah you know, and there's all different kinds um that yeah. that i offer so
0: well it's a lovely symbolism isn't it um you know when you talk about the, the concept and the idea it's a it's a lovely positive symbolism of of mental health and taking care of yourself um and so uh I'm sure it'll do well. I'm sure it is doing very well, and I'm sure it will continue to do very well. And I wish you the very best of luck, luck with it. Okay, before we wrap up, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the book "Own Your Awkward" and people a bit of get hold of a copy and and from where?
1: Oh, thank you. um Well, we are racing to try and get this book out as as quickly as we can because I I do feel passionately that. Um, it being a combination of my story that I share plus other people's stories that we share that they have generously shared with me, but also that it includes some frameworks in terms of how to offer help and how to ask for help. And the end plan is in there. And we are trying to get out as soon as possible. So it will be out at the end of the year, but you can pre-order it And apparently it is all about those pre-orders and those early sales. So if you hop on to either Amazon or maybe Waterstones might be rather lovely, then, yeah, own your awkward Michelle Morgan out at the end of the year.
0: Fantastic. I was going to say thank you so much for, for doing the interview. Thank you so much for having me. Michelle's candor is refreshing and it is people like Michelle who are leading the debate, for us to be more open and honest with our feelings and to overcome the stigma attached to the mental health conversation. Keep a look out for her new book, Own Your Awkward. I'm sure it's going to be a great read. Once again, Michelle's story reinforces the point that mental health has no boundaries business leader, mum, dad, daughter, son, we're all vulnerable. The mental health conversation is moving forward, but there's still so much more to do, particularly in the workplace. We all have a duty to ourselves, our friends, loved ones, and colleagues, to recognize that our mental health is precious and needs to be taken care of like every aspect of our well-being. I hope this mini-series featuring Adam Rubins, Dr Liz Miller and now Michelle Morgan's stories has shed some light and insight into the debate. I thank them all for their honesty and their openness. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends. Turning the Tables is taking a short break until autumn when I will return with more stories of how people have turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.